0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When we experience boredom, we tend to experience it as uncomfortable and agitating, seek to banish it with some ready distraction, like our smartphone, for example, or we try to look at boredom sort of piously as something we should learn to sit with because it builds character. My guest today would argue that it's best to see boredom more neutrally as simply an important signal that we need to change up what we're doing and become more effective and engaged in the world. His name is James Dankert, and he's a cognitive neuroscientist and professor of psychology, as well as the co-author of the book, Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom. We begin our conversation with how boredom has been thought about in history and philosophy and yet largely ignored by psychologists. We then discuss what it really means to be bored and what types of people are more prone to boredom. James explains how boredom is related to our sense of agency and the role constraints play in increasing it. We then get into how people's propensity towards boredom changes across the lifespan and at what ages you're more and less likely to experience boredom. And we enter conversation with the negative effects of being bored prone, including the way boredom may increase political extremism. Then we also talk about the more positive and adaptive ways to deal with being bored, as well as what to tell your kid when they say, Dad, I'm bored. Out of the show's over. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash boredom. James joins me now via clearcast.io. James Dankert, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So you are a psychologist and you are the co-author of a book called Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom. What I think is interesting... Boredom has been explored by philosophers, theologians, writers for millennia. Yet you note in the book, you and your co-author note that psychology has pretty much ignored it. They've written about it a bit, but it hasn't really done a deep dive. Like, why do you think psychologists have ignored pretty much this ubiquitous human experience? It's hard to answer that, really, because,
1: you know, it's a sociological question. What makes something a sexy topic in science? And, and, you know, there are many factors, I guess. But one thing that's possible is that we just sort of treat boredom as a kind of trivial experience. And so why study it, right? You can see that in the response that many parents have to their kids when the kid comes to them and says, I'm bored. You say, well, get over it. Go do something. You know, there's a million things you could be doing. So just go and do one of those things. What, what we've learned over the last three or four decades is that, you know, being prone to boredom, so experiencing it a lot, actually has a, a wide range of pretty negative consequences. And so I think we're starting to get to it now and treat it more seriously. And it's getting the research due that it needs.
0: Well, let's talk about the history of boredom. Do we have any like written accounts of like boredom from a thousand, two thousand years ago. Like when do we when do we first see humans talking about being bored? Well, the the
1: word itself doesn't really come into the English language until Charles Dickens writes about it in his book Bleak House. But we as you point out, we know from other kinds of accounts that boredom's been with us for millennia. So one of the stories that we tell, it actually comes from a book by Peter Tui called Boredom, a lively history that he he put out some years back. He did a dive into a a Roman philosopher, Seneca, who, you know, talks about day following night and and night following day and everything being the same and, and monotonous and routine. And that at the end of all of that sort of monotony and routine, he feels nauseous. And, you know, it doesn't take much of a stretch to suggest that that's a pretty good description of the outcome of monotony leading to boredom. Tui also sort of dug up a a story of a a Roman town that immortalised somebody who saved the entire town from boredom. So there's some sort of stone there that says, you know, General such and such was a great guy because he he saved us from our boredom. We have no idea how or what that meant, but at least it sort of highlights that, yeah, the experience has been with us for a long, long time. And we suggest also in the book that, it's really something that's selected for in our evolutionary past, right? So you can demonstrate boredom in animals. And if animals can experience boredom, then it probably serves some sort of function and, you know, was
0: was selected for for a reason. And the other f- people you highlight in the book that really thought a lot about boredom or what we call boredom were monks. They called it, it was like a, actually a sin, they called it a cidia, right?
1: Yeah, acedia, so it's sort of neglectfulness in your duties towards God, but not just a neglectfulness and sort of a neglectfulness with respect to, you know, being sort of slothful and, and not really uh, getting up and getting, you know, into your duties and your your responsibilities to God. The, the interesting sort of take on that too is that uh, Asidia was reported by monks in cloistered sort of living arrangements, most often when they were doing things like work on math and arithmetic, which, you know, if we jump forward to our present day, there's some great work from a guy called Reinhard Peckren looking at boredom in schools and math tends to be the, the subject that most kids report finding boring. But, yeah, it it's it sort of... The, the monks also referred to it, not just as a sedia, but that was the first kind of use of the term the noonday demon," which it might be a term that you've heard before that people used to refer to depression. but it wasn't first used to refer to depression. It was referred more to sort of boredom and finding yourself in the midst of a day that was the same as any other day with you know things that you had to do, so duties that you had in front of you, but just no motivation to do them, or you know, maybe a motivation to do something
0: else. And then the other group of philosophers that thought and wrote a lot about boredom were the existentialists, the 20th century existentialists. Like, how did they think about boredom and how did that shape our perception of boredom?
1: Yeah. So their take on boredom was, is really in the context of the existential philosophy focusing on our, our search for and our need for meaning in life. How do we make sense and, and how do we find meaning in our lives? And so Arthur Schopenhauer, sort of a progenitor of, of existentialism, sort of said that, you know, the, the two enemies of human happiness are pain and boredom. And he explicitly sort of had these two enemies align up with different socioeconomic strata. So you know pain was the the province of the the poor, uh, you know because they they had sort of difficult lives that they had to struggle through. And boredom was the province of the rich. you know they had so much you know available at their fingertips that you know they sort of got bored with everything that they could do because nothing really seemed like it was uh, you know novel enough, I guess. But really, what they're doing is they're casting boredom as in the first instance, A lack of meaning. So, things are cast as being boring because they don't mean much to you. They're not particularly relevant to you in some way. But then also that boredom is a sort of search for meaning. When you're bored, you don't sort of take it lying down. You start looking for ways in which you can overcome the boredom and in their hands, that
0: means finding something that is more meaningful in your life. Gotcha. Let's talk about... So, we talk about what what philosophers have been talking about boredom, but as a psychologist... How do you describe boredom? I think everyone knows what it feels like to be bored, but like how, as a psychologist, you have to make that very explicit. So, how are you describing boredom? Is it,
1: uh, psychologists often refer to a guy called William James, who's like the father of psychology. And, he, and the annoying thing about William James is that he rarely did any experiments, but he did a lot of writing and got a lot of things right in any way, you know. And he's got this quote that sort of starts, you know, everybody knows what attention is, and then he goes on and describes what he thinks that means. But you could do the same thing as that you just did. You know, everybody knows what boredom is until you have to sort of buckle down and define it really tightly, right? So in the the book, John and I describe boredom as an unmet desire to be engaged in something meaningful. So the uncomfortable feeling that you get when you want to be engaged in something meaningful, but you can't satisfy that desire. A quote from Leo Tolstoy captures it more succinctly. It sort of says that boredom is the desire for desires. You want something but you don't want anything that's currently in front of you. You want something else and you don't know what that something else might be.
0: So yeah, that's the best way that I can uh, capture boredom. And how would you describe it? Was is boredom an emotion, a feeling? What is? How would you describe it like in that, those terms?
1: Yeah, so my co-author, John, who's a clinical psychologist by training, which is not what I am, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, he would describe boredom as a fling state. So he differentiates that from from an emotion in this way, I think. When you're bored, you're sort of thinking about your own thinking. You're thinking about what's going on in your head. It is very self-focused kind of feeling state where you're thinking, you know, I want something, but I can't figure out what I want and it feels uncomfortable and I hate it. and I'm bored. And you keep sort of ruminating on those sorts of thoughts. So it has an affective component. It has an emotional component to it. That is that we feel it to be negative. It's uncomfortable. We don't like it. But as a feeling state, it's very directly focused on the thoughts that you're having and the, the desire that you have to, to find a goal to launch into. So it's, I mean, it's probably a little bit more nuanced than it needs to be, but it's both an affective state and a, a sort of cognitive
0: experience. And how would you differentiate boredom from apathy?
1: Yeah, so uh, we published a study a lot while ago where we statistically dis- differentiated it, and that was really just based on what you we, we sort of call you know questionnaire studies, survey studies. So you can ask people to respond to an apathy questionnaire, a boredom questionnaire, and then statistically you can determine how much they overlap, and they don't. So apathy, but, but sort of more colloquially, sort of apathy is the absence of motivation. You don't actually care. I mean, that's the classic couch potato, right? You're lying around on the couch and you can't be bothered doing anything. The key thing that differentiates boredom from that is that you are bothered. You're motivated to do something. You just can't satisfy that motivation as easily as you'd like. So motivation is the thing that really
0: differentiates those two experiences. So, okay, boredom is basically the desire for desire. Like you want, you're not currently mentally engaged with whatever's in front of you. You want to be mentally engaged with something, something meaningful, but you can't figure out what it is. So it's sort of this conundrum, like you want something, but you don't know what you want. Like, why Why do we have that conundrum? Like, why is it that, even though cognitively we might know, like our kid might know, oh, I could go read a book. It's like, well, I don't want to do that. Like, why Why do we have this this conundrum, you call the the conundrum of boredom?
1: I, I'd love to have a really clean and quick answer for you, but it's one of the things that is part of the ongoing research that we're doing on boredom is to, to try and figure out Why is it that people, particularly people who are boredom prone, why is it that they fail to launch? You know, they recognize the signal is telling them that they want something. So it's not that they don't understand that signal. It's like, yes, I want to be doing something and I want to be doing something meaningful. And it's also not that they can't see potential options. Like you, you raise the example of the, you know, the bored child, you, kid comes to you and says that they're bored you know most of us as parents will say well why don't you do this why don't you do that and we give them all kinds of options every one of which they dismiss because they've seen those options too they know that those options are out there they just don't want them right now but that still begs the question of why and so there's a number of possible options one is that you know perhaps people who are prone to boredom are just not willing to exert the effort needed to engage And we have some data that we've collected recently that shows that that might indeed be the case, that when you make people bored, they tend to take the easy option instead of the the more challenging option, which is sort of self-defeating in some ways, you know, because the easy option is also going to be the more boring option, right? It could be that people who are, are prone to boredom just don't recognize or see value in the same way as people who are not prone to boredom. So that is that, you know the things that are in front of them are sort of tarred with the same grey brush, you know, they just don't really see them as being viable options or, you know, they just don't seem to be rewarding enough. And I raise that in part because we've done some work in individuals who've suffered traumatic brain injuries and they tend to report higher levels of boredom. And the part of the brain that's typically injured there is known as the orbitofrontal cortex, but it's important for representing value and reward. And so what I think is happening for those people who've suffered those brain injuries is that their threshold for what counts as enjoyable, pleasurable fun has been raised. And so now it's harder for them to engage and see value in things because of that raising of the threshold. And that could be true for people who are high in boredom proneness, regardless of whether or not they had a head injury. So there's at least those two options, and there's potentially lots more that might explain why people when they're bored or, or the boredom prone individual tend to fail to launch, but it's still an open question.
0: So you've been mentioning throughout this conversation that some people are more boredom prone... Than others. So you talked about, so a specific example, someone who has a brain injury, some part of the brain gets damaged where they can't measure reward or value as well. But there's other people with, who don't have a, a traumatic brain injury that are also more prone to boredom. Have we figured that out? Like what sort of personality types are more prone to boredom?
1: There are a range of things that we know are are associated with being prone to boredom. So one that we've looked at prominently is uh, the, the capacity for self-control. So, you know, and this is the... You know, your ability to, to marshal your thoughts and your emotions and your actions in the pursuit of a goal. You know, how well do you sort of put that goal in your headlights and go for it? And people who struggle with self control tend to be more boredom prone. We've also known that people who are a little bit neurotic, so people who have higher levels of, of anxiety and concern for, for day to day life, they also tend to be a little bit more boredom prone. And when I mentioned earlier that, you know, boredom is this, self-focused experience where you could kind of ruminate on your thoughts that you're having and and you ruminate basically on your failure to engage. That's very similar to sort of ruminating on things that make you anxious as well. So it's perhaps not a surprise that those two things are, are related. There's a few other relations that I think are interesting, but they're not quite as prominent so we know that a certain type of narcissism is associated with being boredom prone as well we talk about two different kinds of narcissism sort of overt narcissism which is you know the person that brags about how wonderful they are and then covert narcissism and covert narcissists are the people who think you know the world is just failing to recognize their brilliance if everything would be better if only people could see how wonderful i am and those are the kind of people who are prone to boredom The overt narcissist is not because they think they're brilliant and they tell everybody they're brilliant and they don't feel boredom, but the covert narcissist does. So there's some associations like that that we think are interesting. Also have shown that people who are low in self-esteem tend to be more boredom prone. And what we think that's about is that the lower self-esteem is probably related in the first instance to people not believing that they're very effective agents in the world. And so what I mean by that is that we have a need to see ourselves as being you know effective actors when we choose to do something it normally works or when we choose to engage with the world we can see and anticipate that the effects are going to be what they're going to be you know we're going to be able to pursue a goal and have it come to fruition and if you don't believe that then you know, you don't see yourself as a very effective human being, then I think you're more prone to being bored as well. And so that's another aspect of
0: the boredom personality that we're pursuing at the moment. And so these are all internal factors that contribute to boredom. And I I think you make this point a really great way, a a story you told to show that two people can have the same experience and have vastly different boredom responses. And the experience you gave was two astronauts in space, and one astronaut, I think it was a Russian, just talked about how bored he was. I think he was like, in, wasn't he in Skylab? He was there forever.
1: Yeah. So he had about 212 days, I think, uh, Valentin Lebedev when in uh, the space station. And then at that time, it was in the 80s. I think at the, that time, it was a, a record.
0: Yeah. So he, he at first, he was kind of excited because you, you're in outer space. And after a while, he's like, oh, this is so boring. I, I just can't take this. I can't wait to get home. What are people doing on Earth? And then the other one was Chris Hadfield, right? Is that yes. his name? Yeah and he completely like same he was in there up in space for a long time but a completely different experience yeah and and you know I, I think when we talked earlier
1: about the role of meaning in boredom chris hadfield is just able to see meaning in in anything that he was doing while he was up there on the space station so He made YouTube videos about how to fix the plumbing on a space toilet. And you sort of think he's this highly trained guy with, you know, huge amounts of qualifications and they've got him fixing a toilet, but you can't really call a plumber when you're up there. So, He made videos about these mundane things that he had to do on the space station, but to him they weren't mundane. He was able to see value in them and meaning in them and and so on. And he also talks about, you know, at every quiet moment that he had on the space station, he would go to the portal and have a look out because he was, you know, he reveled in the awe that that he felt when he looked out at, at space. To be fair to the Russian cosmonaut, Valentin Lebedev, he too would report feelings of awe and, you know, he too was engaged by the mission that he was on and so on. But he talked a lot about anxieties and a lot about boredom. And so something about the differences in their personalities and how they approached their jobs meant that they found the experience to be different. And one of the key things about Lebedev's story that I found interesting is that he often reported those feelings of anxiety and boredom in instances where he felt like he wasn't in control. So he talked a lot about, you know, the ground control people doing these useless tests or getting them to do these useless tests because, you know, he, he didn't see any value in them. And he talked at some point too about, you know, being a slave to the instruments. You know, we weren't We're not doing the work, the instruments are doing the work. And in both of those instances, what he's expressing is He's not the master of his own domain. He's not the person who's making the choices of what to do next. And that was what was causing him to feel a little bit bored.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. And the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90 the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Okay, so we talked about some internal factors that can contribute to feelings of boredom: so low self-esteem, a lack of agency, narcissism, neuroticism. But have we figured out like external factors, like whether you're boredom-prone or not? Are there things in the external world if you if you encounter it will likely lead you to be bored if you encounter that activity or object? Yeah, what makes a
1: person, an individual bored is a little bit like asking what makes a person happy, right? What makes me happy is not the same thing that's going to make you happy. And so it is sort of a little bit idiosyncratic, but there are nonetheless some factors that, that are pretty good producers of boredom. When we first started doing psychological work in the early 1900s on boredom, it was on the basis of sort of uh, um, industrialization of work. So people were now starting to do these jobs on assembly lines where they had a single thing to do monotonously day after day after day. And psychologists decided to measure what the potential negative outcomes of that might be. And one of them unsurprisingly was boredom. So certainly monotony is a pretty good driver of boredom. But one of the other things that is relevant to us in this past 12 months, I think, is that constraint is a pretty good driver of boredom as well. So when you feel like you are unable to be the master of your domain, when you feel like you're not freely able to choose what you wanna do when you wanna do it, then that too can be a pretty good driver of boredom. We sort of asked people recently, about their experiences during the pandemic lockdown. And this was data we collected in April and May of last year. And people are reporting higher levels of boredom than before the pandemic. And the boredom prone were more likely to break the rules of social distancing. And what that says to us is that the constraints for those highly boredom prone individuals were just too much to bear, pushing them to do things that were not in their self-interest. Because as you might've guessed as well, these were also individuals more likely to contract COVID because they broke the rules. So I think constraint is a,
0: is a huge driver of feelings of boredom. So you mentioned earlier that humans aren't the only ones that experience boredom. Animals like mice can they we can tell if a mouse is bored. Do we know why? Like why, evolutionarily speaking, like why what's the benefit of feeling bored? Like what, yeah. How's that help with their yeah. survival basically?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, if, if you're going to claim that, that animals can be bored and that boredom has been selected for in our evolutionary past, then you start, then the next thing you have to do is come up with a functional account of it. What's it for? And I think that the function of boredom is merely to signal that you need to explore your environment for something else to do. And animals need to do this in a range of different ways. They need to balance two drives that we call exploration and exploitation. If you stay in one drive state for too long, that incurs costs and risks that the animal needs to be attending to so you sort of have to balance out how much time you spend exploring your environment for resources and how much time you spend exploiting them so the notion think about an animal finding a berry bush and just standing in the one place for too long eating berries from that bush they get to exploit the resources but they make themselves prone to predation as well right so they've got to constantly be on the lookout to to balance out those two things and for us then boredom can signal that now is the time to change. You know, whatever it is that you're doing isn't satisfying in some way and you need to explore your environment for something else that will satisfy. Or alternatively, you need to double down your efforts and stick out the task that you're doing and try and make it through. So that's the function from a human point of view. From an animal point of view, I think the function is really just to, you know, manage
0: that balance between exploration and exploitation. Well, I think it's interesting. One thing you note is that there's a theory out there that boredom drives creativity, right? You feel bored and you respond to that by doing something creative, something new, something novel. But when you guys actually did some research on this, you found that boredom actually didn't increase creativity that much or it was marginal.
1: Yeah, I think that it's a. this is a logic issue. It's a logic problem. I think, you know, for people out there who are listening to this who have creative outlets, they'll understand that, you know, to foster those creative outlets takes work. We have this notion, I think, in our society that creativity is just natural. You know, some people have it and some people don't. And because of that, we think not only is it natural, but it comes easy. Right, So, you, you know, people who are really great on guitar or, you know, people who are fantastic artists and you sort of think, wow, look at that stuff that they do that I can't do, you know, that that just must come naturally to them. And that's a lot of bunkum, that's <laughs> crap. <laughs> Anybody who has fostered a creative outlet will tell you they had to learn, they had to practice, they have to continue practicing, they have to continue doing their art, doing their creative process of whatever it is, right? So, the problem of logic is that boredom won't make you creative. If you are creative in the first instance and you've developed those outlets, then you can turn to them when you're bored. But you can't hope that boredom will make you creative. And that's and creativity is a very difficult thing, notoriously difficult thing to measure anyway. And so the studies that have been done to measure it are rife with problems. And to my knowledge, there's nothing that's been done really that would convince me that if I put you into a bored state, if I make you feel bored right now, that somehow you'll be more creative. If you have that as an outlet, I play guitar myself. And so sometimes when I'm bored, I'll go to that. And it works, you know, but I've been playing guitar since I was 12. Being bored
0: didn't make me a better guitarist. Another thing you know throughout the book is that just as everyone has their different ways that they get bored or not bored, it's idiosyncratic in that way. But even in a single person, what makes you bored or not bored can change. Like boredom actually changes throughout the life cycle. Can you walk us through the research that you've guys uncovered there?
1: Yeah, so boredom does change over the lifespan. We sort of there's we would like a lot more work to be done in younger people. Right? So we have a little bit of data in, in young people, but not much. What we do have shows that boredom tends to rise in the teenage years. And what I think is happening there is that, you know, as you get into those teenage years, you're starting to develop the skills of adulthood, but you haven't quite got there yet. And you're also In a situation of constraint. Your parents constrain what you can do, your teachers constrain what you can do, society constrains what you can do. And so the teenager is seeing themselves developing skills they didn't have before, but not able to deploy them. And so boredom becomes a big issue. There's also a notion that in teens, leisure boredom is a problem you know having too much time on their hands the, the proverbial sort of idle hands being the devil's devil's playground and so you know boredom is sort of rising in those early to mid teenage years we then find that boredom starts to drop in the late teenage early 20s years and that can, gets back to that part of the brain that I was talking about the frontal cortex Your brain doesn't fully mature until your early twenties. So, you know, early to mid twenties. And the last part of the brain to fully mature is that frontal cortex, which is important for all of our most sophisticated skills. It's important for abstract reasoning, for decision making, for, you know, the ability to control impulses, all this kind of stuff depends on that frontal part of your brain. And so as that part becomes fully mature, we start to see increases in self control and decreases in boredom. And then that decrease in boredom continues into your 30s, 40s, and 50s. The interesting thing about that, though, is there was a study by Chin and colleagues where they collected an enormous amount of data from across America, sort of diary data in a sense. They had people you know, alerted on their phones to say, you know, how are you feeling right now? How bored are you? Over a course of about two weeks. And even though boredom diminishes into your 30s, 40s, and 50s, it's still prevalent. It's still one of the top 10 emotions reported over a two-week period. And so it's not like it disappears and goes away forever. One of the reasons why it probably diminishes is that we all gain a suite of responsibilities as we hit those decades. We're raising families, pursuing careers, you know, paying mortgages, these kinds of things that just don't leave as much time for, for being bored. And then we find that, and there's a range of studies that have shown that boredom starts to rise again in our sort of sixth, seventh and eighth decades. And the primary factor there is social networks and social supports. So in the elderly who have strong social supports, boredom doesn't tend to be a problem. But for the elderly who are, you know, more isolated and they tend to report elevated levels of loneliness, as you might expect, and elevated boredom probably
0: as a consequence of that loneliness and that lack of social support. So we have been talking about what causes boredom, what boredom feels like, what has the research said about the effects of boredom, particularly, I mean, I think when we think of being bored, we think of negative consequences, you know, like idle hands do the devil's work, like you said, has that, has the research borne that out? Like, are there, are there negative consequences to feeling bored?
1: Yeah. So I should make a distinction here between in the moment feelings of boredom. So the state of boredom, which John and I claim in the book is, you know, it's neither good nor bad. It's just a signal right? How you respond to it is really up to you. And you can respond in good ways. You can respond with creative outlets, for for example. And so, we distinguish between those in the moment feelings of boredom and the individual trait propensity to experience boredom. So, we call that boredom prone, right? And we've talked a little bit already about what that personality might be. There are no positive associations with being boredom prone. It's it's all a a fairly uh, bleak sort of picture. So, People who are boredom prone tend to have, you know, other mental health problems, higher rates of depression and anxiety, even things like higher rates of hostility, which, you know, is just a, a, an externally directed hostility. You know, the world is not enough for me. And, and that kind of leads to that sort of hostile response to everything. We know also that being prone to boredom is associated with elevated drug and alcohol use. There's some association between being boredom prone and problem gambling. And there's some, finally, like there's some really great work coming out of uh, um, a, a lab by a guy called John Alhai at the University of Toledo. And there's a few labs in, in China that are doing the same sort of work, looking at boredom and our relationship to our smartphones. And what they find is that for some people, and you don't want to catastrophize this, the some people is about four to 6%, depend, depending on the, the study you look at. But for some people, they're relationship to their smartphone and social media becomes a very addictive relationship as a function of being boredom prone. They're sort of turning to their phones and turning to social media when they're bored as a kind of pacifier for boredom. And then it starts to have many of the features of addiction. So they keep ramping up their use of their smartphone, like you might ramp up the use of a drug if you become addicted to it. They report feelings of anxiety and distress when they're not with their phone, if their phone is not on. You know, so that those two things start to uh, are very characteristic of an addictive relationship to something. So,
0: yeah, there's not a lot of positive news for being a boredom-prone individual. So, you mentioned so there's typically like maladaptive responses. What would be like an adaptive response to boredom? Right, that if you feel you feel that moment boredom that that uh, that in the moment feeling of boredom, what would be like a an adaptive response to that where it actually make you better in the long term?
1: ultimately, I think there's two potential adaptive responses, two classes at least. And so one of them is what we'd sort of call reframing. And that is just to say, okay, think a little bit about why do I think this particular experience I'm having right now, why do I think it's boring? What is it about it that's boring? And then see if you can reframe it. You know, turn it into something that's not boring the best example i can come up with for that is again to return to assembly line work there are you know most of us if we think about assembly line work particularly if we have never done it before we would think it'd be pretty boring you know you get different kinds of widgets passing you on an assembly line and you do the same action to them you know over and over and over and over and over again but some assembly line workers report that they just use ways to reframe it to make it a sort of personal challenge. So they say to themselves, "All right, I'll see if I can better my last hour's performance or if I can better my my personal best for the the week." And so now the task is not boring because it's a personal challenge. It's been imbued with some sort of meaning. So if you can find ways to cognitively reframe what you're doing to make it less boring, then that's a that's a good response. The other response, and that allows you to sort of double down and and continue to focus on the task at hand and try to push through and get it done. The other response, I think, is to to just do something else. Uh, You know, just think about something else that would be more meaningful to you and launch into it and, and, you know, don't hesitate. Try not to spend a lot of time ruminating on what that might be. And also in that context, you know, we've talked a little bit about meaning and that boredom is arises when you're lacking meaning and and you start seeking meaning. I think that that sometimes pushes us to look for something grand to engage in, some big project, something that somehow we think is important to the world. I don't think that that's useful. So, you know, you could launch into something that, you know, on the face of it seems trivial, but it's not trivial to you. And so, you know, that can alleviate your boredom. My example on that front is that pretty early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, I found myself a little bit bored, so I decided I was going to make a cake that I used to make when I was a kid with my mum. So I called her up, I got the recipe, I baked the cake. There's nothing grand about that. There's nothing, you know, really particularly meaningful to anybody else, but it was something that in that moment was meaningful to me. Now, that isn't going to work every single day, Right. Or every single time that you're bored. But, you know, finding things like that, that are doable, practical, that have outcomes at the end that you can see, you can, you know, you can see the fruits of your labor. I think those are good approaches to, to being bored. The last thing, I guess, if I was to think of a third thing, I don't know, I don't, I don't think that there's a lot of research out there at this moment, but I suspect that people who engage in sort of a solitary physical activity, you know, runners, people who cycle you know cyclists um people who go to the gym and and do workouts i suspect that that can be an outlet to alleviate boredom um even though i I don't do that kind of stuff and when i look at it from the outside i think that would bore me I, i think running i would find boring but for the people who do it a lot i think that you know they can engage in those kinds of actions when they feel bored and that outlet of using up your physical energy is something that sort of alleviates the boredom because when you're bored in part, you're feeling like you've got these unspent resources. You, and I've been talking about it in terms of unspent cognitive resources, but perhaps you could just have you know, some sort of physical outlet that releases that energy as well. And so we don't know much about that from a research point of view, but I think it's certainly a possibility.
0: Well, to so that second point you were talking about, so if, when, when people have a lack of meaning, they try to get meaning in a, in a grand level. And you've guys done research that a, a typical response to that is people go to political extremes where they embrace tribalism. And, and in fact, they're trying to soothe boredom. They're, they they feel like what they're doing has no meaning. They feel bored. And so they're trying to do something grand and great so they can have meaning and not feel bored. Yeah, that's right. And adhering to or,
1: or latching onto a, a strong identity uh, or a strong ideology is a pretty good way of giving you meaning. But if you don't think that carefully about it, then, you know, that won't necessarily always be positive. And so that's work that comes out of the UK from a guy called Wynan Van Tilburg he showed, you know, he asked people, what's your political affiliation? You know, do you support left, progressive or right wing conservative policies? And then he made people bored, and he did that by having them write out long lists of concrete references, which is just a bit bizarre. And then afterwards I said, okay, what's your political allegiance now? And he found that after he'd made people bored, they adhered to whatever political extreme they said at the the outset, they adhered to that even stronger. So, you know, if you said you were left-leaning to begin with, then you were more left-leaning after you were bored and, and same for the, the right-leaning kind of politics. And yeah, it, it ultimately gives you a sense of identity. It gives you a sense of purpose too. But, you know, it, it might also make it sort of a bit challenging to,
0: to listen to the other. So what what do you hope people take away after reading this book? Like, what do you hope, like this is written for a popular audience. What do you hope they walk away thinking about after they they finish out of my school? A couple of things. I mean, I hope that they walk away from understanding
1: that it's not a trivial experience, right? That it plays a role in our lives, plays a function, and it has a function in our daily lives, and that that function is important. And particularly for people like, you know, parents and maybe educators and, and other sorts of professions, if you can come to that point of thinking about boredom in that way, then maybe your responses to, to people who are bored will be different as well. And then the other thing, I guess, is that the main point that John and I were pushing in the book is that boredom is this threat to your sense of agency, is showing you at this moment that you're not being very effective. And if we can understand boredom in that way, then we can start to shape our responses to it in a more sort of conscious way, we can we can think carefully about how we want to do something to alleviate that boredom rather than just sort of latching on to the first thing that we see or the easiest outlet closest by to us. We can think, okay, what I really want here is something that's meaningful to me that establishes my sense of agency. What could that be? And so, you know, those would be the kinds of main messages I hope
0: people would take away from the book. Right, don't turn to your smartphone right away. it'll maybe it'll make you it'll pacify you in the short term, but in the long term, you're just digging yourself into a hole,
1: yeah, and in that yeah, absolutely. But in that context, I think it's important for me to say too, that you know go into your smartphone every once in a while to zone out, play candy Crush, or you know dive down the Instagram rabbit hole, whatever it is that you want to do. There's nothing wrong with that so long as you're consciously choosing it. so long as you're sort of saying, Okay, I'm just zoning out for a while here. This is what I'm gonna do. If you
0: if you're not conscious about that, then it'll start to become a problem and it's not a great response to boredom. And after all your research, you're you're also a parent. Have you figured out the best way to respond when you have a kid that says, Dad, I'm bored? Like what what's the <laughs> best response?
1: So uh, in, at the moment, my kids are too much on screens because of the pandemic and there's sort of the, <laughs> the rules that we had pre pandemic gone out the window. Right. My eldest says he never gets bored, but I think that that's not true. I think that he just, when he gets bored, he goes out for a run or he goes and plays basketball. So I think that uh, I, I've not had to deal with it with him. What I would say for parents is that if you, you, you you want there to be opportunities for the kid, but if they come to you and say that they're bored, I think the best response is to say, oh, well, (laughs) just let them try and figure it out on their own. Because if you are always solving their boredom for them, then you're not allowing them to figure out how to establish agency. And that's what they need to learn to do. They need to learn to figure out, okay, I'm actually the one in control here. I get to decide what's meaningful and what's not, and I get to decide what I should launch into. The challenge, of course, is that you can't just let kids right free run you've got to have some you know guidance and supervision
0: over them well james this has been a great conversation is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work
1: uh they can go to my website which is just my name you know all no no spaces or anything and no caps.com and so they can go there and there's they'll see links to some of the other news pieces that i've done but they'll see also links to the actual science and the papers that we've published um And then John and I are also doing a blog about once a month on uh, psychology today,
0: so they can go there and see some of our up-to-date thoughts on boredom. Fantastic. Well, James Dankert, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. It was my pleasure too. My guest today was James Dankert. He's the co-author of the book, Out of My Skull. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You find out more information about his work at his website, jamesdankert.com. Also check out our show notes at awm.is slash boredom, We find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you all only your list to the AIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away.